Hey, here's just another quick note for business. A lot of the certifications that you can get in business, in my opinion, are a waste of money. I think businesses know how to rip off other businesses. So usually I think B2B expenditures are not the best idea, unless of course your clientele or businesses, right? But usually B2B is much more expensive than B2C. Uh, and that's because, business to consumer, that's because businesses know that other businesses are getting a tax deduction. So it's actually less expensive for a business to pay a, another business for something. So they're able to charge more in the first place. Whereas consumers can oftentimes get vastly a similar quality product and, and pay less. It's, it's just weird. Uh, I find that to be true. If, I'll just give you a quick example. Spectrum. Uh, internet. They they want to charge a customer like 80 bucks a month for a gig, and business customer service uh, internet's like 240 bucks. It's three times for the same speed, just because you get better customer service. Oh, but one you could say you could write off, dude. I'll write off the personal one if I'm using it for business. You know, it's just ridiculous. So, anyway, the big thing that I see is certifications. Usually, are a waste of money. Not always. Here's the test. The test is very simple. Can it, oh, no, 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 no. You know what, we have to change this word right here. Very, very important here, because it always can. Will it make me more money? It's that simple. So, for example, if you become a real estate agent, will becoming a realtor make you more money? Well, yes, because you'll be able to join the MLS. Will becoming a realtor, short sale designated expert, uh, or uh, a real estate agent who's green certified, uh, and then you know has the ABCD certification, will all this crap make you more money? Probably not. Now, will a realtor who gets a state license and becomes a real estate broker, will that make more money? Yeah, because you're not splitting commissions anymore. Absolutely. Will a, uh, an MLO, a mortgage loan originator, make more money having that, uh, you know, a green building certification? No, it's probably not. It's probably not going to do anything for you. Now, what about if you had a Fannie HomePath certification and by having this certification, you were allowed to do certain loans that otherwise you couldn't do. Yes. If you can open the door up to more business, that makes sense. Is somebody going to use you as an agent over somebody else because you have all these letters behind you? Probably not. Uh, and I see that in, in many different businesses, even in the registered investment advisor business. I'm not saying it's a bad thing and you're not going to learn something, but are more people going to use you because you're a certified financial analyst? Most people have no freaking clue what that means. And they just want to see El Stocco do that. Okay? If El Stocco is doing vastly that, you're good. If you're CFA and your El Stocco is doing that, people sad. They don't care about your letters. So uh, keep that in mind. There are a lot of things that companies will try to sell you when you're an entrepreneur. And a lot of those things, in my opinion, are a great business for those other businesses, but they're a wonderful way for you to waste your money under the guise of doing something. Uh, and oftentimes these serial uh, you know, studiers, I like to call them, who get all these certifications and stuff, 
they don't actually sell real estate. They don't actually do business. It's like they just want more letters and certifications because they, they're trying to say, oh, well, don't worry, I'll, I'll go get clients after I get another certification. It's like sitting in school for, for 12 years and all of the extra years that you sat in school, uh, and, and I mean like 12 college years, right, uh, aren't actually making you any more money. Like, if you could get a bachelor's, a BA, in four years and make $80,000 right out of the gate with uh, you know, a business degree, why would you potentially go uh, for an MBA if the MBA was gonna take you another two years and it only bumped you up to 90K? Probably wouldn't make sense. In those two years, you could probably be making more money just by switching to a different company or something or, or just asking for a raise, like do a good job, ask for a raise, or even getting a raise. A lot of people just don't even have to ask. Uh, same thing, like why would you get a PhD if your income was only going to go to 95 and you'd have to spend another two years doing that? So the, you really want to calculate out how much time is it going to take, how much more money am I actually going to make? You know, if this calculus was, well, if I had a PhD and it took me four years and I need to make $300,000, okay, all right. Maybe now things like this start making sense, right? But, uh, but oftentimes, more studying versus just getting in isn't useful unless you're absolutely unlocking some kind of new vertical that you just haven't been able to unlock yet. Again, like if you're, uh, let's say, a licensed general contractor out here in California that's being a B contractor, and then you want to get your electrical license because that's going to open you up to doing house rewires. Uh, the loophole here in California is just do two trades and then you could do the house wire here. Why would you go sit for your electrical license when you could just do this? Uh, so it's, and it's like, uh, you're spending time doing nothing. Whereas if you absolutely could not touch the electrical because that's what the rule was unless you had that license, sure, opening up a new vertical could make sense. If you have the experience and the ability to get through that and do that, just be careful not to be that serial uh, studier who never actually ends up getting clients. Help me fill in this blank because it's going to help you learn something about yourself. And this is a tricky one, so I want you to think long and hard about this, okay? You gotta fill this blank in. Business is... Business is... Did you say... Because you probably did. Money? Well, congratulations, that is the wrong answer. <laughs> it's true. It's exactly the wrong way to look at it. Business is, let's try it again. Business is people. People, that's what business is. I don't care if it's business to business and you're working with somebody in a corporation or it's business to consumer, you're working with an end user, it doesn't matter. Business is about people. People, humans, are flawed. That's what makes us unique, is we are all flawed. Nobody is perfect, and that sounds cliche, but we're all flawed. That means we are cynics when we should not be. We are trusting when we should not be sometimes. We are untrusting when we should be trusting. Uh, we ultimately 
react more to our feelings than to facts. That's just human nature. And the sooner we realize as entrepreneurs that the goal of business is to make people feel happy. The more money you can make and the sooner you can make it. If you sell a product that is a bad product, like it's a widget, and after a week it breaks, people become sad. If you provide a bad service because you don't answer the phone or you don't do what you say you're going to do or you don't respond to your emails or, or whatever, people will be sad. And it does not matter how many credentials you have, how many facts you have, how many reviews you have, if people have a bad feeling about your character, they will be unhappy. And then you will make less money. It's that simple. Now, there is something important to balance this out with. There are two things. There's reputation, which you should try in business very hard to protect. So for example, if you get a bad Yelp review, your goal should never be saying a, something passive-aggressive like, I'm sorry if you feel that way. That's like one of the most passive-aggressive things you could say, if you feel that way. I'm so sorry. We screwed up. How can we make it right to you? In fact, here are five different ways we want to make it up to you because it's unacceptable that you had this experience. What are you then doing? You're acknowledging they had a bad experience. You are acknowledging that they are sad face. Whether it's true or not, you are acknowledging that they are sad. You are giving them options to fix it. You can actually solve so much of a bad online reputation if you just own up to making mistakes because remember, people are flawed. And you offer people solutions. And sometimes you can't. They disappear. They go away. Oh, well. That's just life. That's what's going to happen. That's where you have to tell yourself in your own head you know that your character is good. But you can't let you having a good character, which is what you know you are, affect what your reputation is, which is what other people believe. Because it's not good enough to just say, ah, my reputation doesn't matter because my character is good. No, 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 no. You, you could have a moment of a bad reputation, but you could fix this. You could fix this by owning up to mistakes and learning from them and improving your services and your products. You can't change character. You, you either really care or you don't. Uh, you know, maybe you could learn to care more, but uh, generally it's hard to change character. Uh, but this is important to say because you don't want to let mistakes define you. That's important. I believe you and many people are great people, but you're going to make mistakes. But you can't let those mistakes then redefine your character. Because they don't. Mistakes don't define who you are. It's the intent that does. It's not the mistake that makes the crime. It's the intent, as uh, is often said. So if business is people and people are flawed and your goal is making people feel good, 
then how do you advance in business if this is abstract? Like it's not super clear how to make people feel good. Or is it? Yeah, it's the or is it part. Unsurprisingly, any service that you provide, any service, I promise you, any service, it does not matter what that service is. If you are a consultant, you're an advertiser, a real estate agent, a lender, an accountant, I do not care what the service is. People are happier the more you talk to them. More contact. The more you contact your clients, and I'm not talking about like, oh, I got a lead, I'm gonna bug the crap out of them. Uh-uh. I'm talking about going to your past clients, hey, how are things, do you need any help in whatever it is that you're doing? Uh, current clients, hey, I just wanna make sure I'm meeting your expectations, anything I can improve on. The more contact you give, the better. Starting a new business, well, hey, can I do something for free for you? Okay, great, now you got a client. Now you've got a client, you're gonna do something for free for them. What are you gonna do afterwards? Hey, is there anything I could have done better? Hey, who do you know that might also need this service for free? Now the same could be said about a product. You could also provide more contact with a product, but generally with a product, the best thing to do is make sure that it actually functions, and in the event that it doesn't, you provide a new product. Logitech did this really well. You'd call them up and be like, hey, my keyboard's not working, which is kind of rare that keyboards stop working, but back in the day, and when I say back in the day, damn, it's like 15, no more, probably like 20 years ago, I'd call them up, I'd be like 10 years old, and i have this little squeaky voice. I'd be like, yes, I'm Mrs. Paffrath, my keyboard's broken, because uh, my voice was so squeaky, and nobody believed I was a dude, they always called me Mrs. I would also call these companies when I was like eight or nine. And, uh, uh, and uh, they would just send me a new keyboard. And I didn't take advantage of that. It was just, it, just, it sucked, it broke. And so they'd send me a brand new one. Or like the printer is not working, it sucks. So what'd they do? They send me a new one. That was uh, Lexmark did that back in the day. Boy, I had problems with Lexmark printers. But anyway, you know, it's just an easy way to, to make sure your people are happy is providing them a product that A, works, uh, and, and contacting them to make sure, follow up, hey, anything we could do better. If they don't respond, that's fine, but you know, if you have an existing client relationship, you wanna be thinking about them. You wanna, the easiest thing you could do as a uh, provider of customer service, basically, is put yourself in their shoes. Okay, well, I'd kind of like an update right now, right? So providing updates, so important. Or, oh, I bet the client has forgotten that they need to do this. Hey, quick reminder, make sure you do X, right? Just simple things like that. Uh, but, but again, remember, business is not about money. Money is the outcome. That is the result. But the actual process of business is about people. So uh, let, me, let me put it this way. You uh, buy a car because you want to get from point A to point B. The car itself has nothing to do with your eventual arrival. And so let me explain that by lining it up a little bit better. The car is to your destination 
like money is to your business. In other words, the end result is the destination. The end result is money, right? This is the end, this is the end. When you have your money and you're on a vacation, you shouldn't be thinking of a business, even though that has been blurred these days, right? The end is the destination, the end is money. Business is just the process. This is the process. It's the tool, it's the tool that gets you to your destination, it's the tool that gets you the money. But business cannot be the destination. The car is not the destination. Business is the process, and therefore business equals people. Business does not equal the destination. And that's probably a, a critical point to hit home that many people forget, they confuse. Uh, this definition of business, thinking, oh yeah, business is money. No, it's not. Business is taking care of people. It is a process to make money. We don't buy a car for the destination. Like, the vacation is not the car. The vacation is not the flight. The destination is, you know, where you're going to be with your friends and family. And I know that you can blur this. You'll be like, oh, well, I want a sports car because... You know, that's fun for me, or I'm going to rent a Formula One car. Okay, okay. It's an analogy, okay? It doesn't have to be perfect. <laughs> but the big key here is remembering business is people. Most important thing. Welcome back to another Meet Kevin lecture. In this one, we have to talk about a lifetime concept that you shall never forget. Because it is what you do not ever, ever want to come across. You never want to be Yomi. Never do you want to be the noun yomi, or a yomi. Yomi. It sounds like this, the way I spelled it here, but it is actually spelled like this. There you go. And if you do it without the capitalization, you could see it a little bit better. Uh, or actually, less better, but the pronunciation. Yo. Me. There you go. But this is what it is. It's a person who always believes that they are owed something more. That if you are supposed to work harder, that is, if my boss wants me to work harder, well then they should pay me more so they can prove to me that I am valued. Wrong. You're fired. If you're a Yomi, you should be fired. Because that's not how the world works. And the sooner you learn that lesson, the better. It's one of the most valuable lessons you could ever learn. If you want to make money as an entrepreneur or a hustler, you always provide value first. And then you receive. You must give to receive. The more you give, the more you receive. Anybody who has an entitlement or an expectation that they are owed something and then they will do something should not be somebody in your circle of influence or competence. Here's a classic example. 
classic example, and this has happened to me before, this exact scenario. Somebody says, you know, right now I'm just doing paperwork, and I know this is temporary, but I feel like I'm just doing busy work. And keep in mind, backstory, they were hired in a transitionary period to get two quarters, that's six months, of paperwork done and then move into new projects because those new projects would come alive. They just needed to work hard and prove themselves here and then they would graduate, right? And so this idea was, oh well, I'm just doing paperwork. I'm gonna take my time and not really care about doing this so well because this is just beneath me. This is below me. That was literally what I was told by that employee. You can't even make it up. After, after, after they got the little, they got the goodbye notice, uh, they said, this paperwork is beneath me. I can't believe I was tasked with this, even though this is what they were hired to do. And I suggested, why, why didn't you bring that up? And their response was literally the following. Well, if you valued me, you would have paid me more, even though, keep in mind, just so you know, they were doing this BS paperwork, they were getting paid $125,000 a year, and they had no experience, okay? No experience, $125,000 a year. So I don't want you to think they were getting underpaid. They were getting substantially overpaid for what they were doing. But anyway, their literal response to me was, well, if you really valued me, you would have paid me more and then I would have done the paperwork better. That was their line. I could not believe before my eyes that I had literally met the definition of a yomi. You owe me proof that you value me and then I will work harder and rise to the level that you're paying me. And I remember thinking to myself, what world do you live in where you receive before you provide? That's what the government gives you when you're on bare minimum food stamps getting by because you're struggling or you're homeless. You receive and the government hopes that you will get back up on your feet and get back out in the world. But you're not getting paid $125,000. That is a yomi attitude. And yomi attitudes are in an organization cancer. They spread like wildfire. They demotivate people. They encourage other people to think, that's right, I should be paid more and then I'll work harder. So what do people do? They take the foot off the 80% gas pedal. They drop that to 40% effort. And guess what happens when they work 40% effort? Their work quality goes down and they actually are then valued less they get passed up for promotions because they're not working as hard. And then guess what happens after that? They start building this very terrible word called resentment. Resentment is absolutely toxic. That is the end of the line. Uh, I mean, it's beyond cancerous in terms of the employee world. It is uh, the definition of a bad apple who is going to drop the efficiency of your entire company. So. Somebody who is a yomi has the laws of success backwards. A yomi believes, pay me more than I'm worth, 
and then I will do better work. That is never ever how entrepreneurship or success or business works. You will work so hard providing value and you will work so hard being underpaid and then at some point in the future you will receive and you will be overpaid. That's the way the world works. You get underpaid first and then you get overpaid. It's never the other way around. But there are still endless people in our lives and in our surroundings who are yomis and they go through life thinking, you know, I'm really owed something from that company. You know, that person really owes me an apology. That person owes me a discount. Anybody who's saying somebody owes them something is looking at life completely opposite. You know what you do to somebody you think owes you something? You go to them and you say, hey, you know what? I expect nothing from you. Thank you for the opportunity. I wish you the best and we'll see you around. And then you send them a Mrs. Fields cookie cake or $100 as a gift card to somewhere or whatever. Now you've literally turned the Yomi world around. You get a Yomi out of your life and you have become the person who realizes, is, who realizes it is better to work providing value first, to work with happiness first, and to give because you know when you give, you will in the future become overpaid. That's what you want and that's how the laws of success work. Any Yomi, is a noun, oh, we've defined it, a noun should not be in your life or circle of influence or worse at your company. Now generally as an entrepreneur, you want to have a deep understanding of what you are selling or working on. So for example, if you are doing that smart home tech, you need to have a deep understanding of how things work. You should understand the mechanics of Wi-Fi. Why should you understand the mechanics of Wi-Fi? So that way, when you go to a client, and you say, hey look, this is the floor plan of your house, let's say that's the kitchen, there's a staircase there, there's a front room over here, front room over here, there we go, a family room over here. Alright, let's say it's just a one story home, okay, well, whatever, let's just simplify it so we don't go into two stories. Uh, you want to be able to explain to your clients, look, as much as you want your little Wi-Fi beacon over here in the corner of the kitchen because you think that's a convenient spot, it's actually terrible for Wi-Fi management. What we should actually be doing is putting a Wi-Fi beacon here and here and we should be mounting those to the ceiling so that way you're getting sort of the umbrella of best Wi-Fi that then is spreading out from this, right? And now, look, because you have more knowledge than them of just shoving the router in a closet on a floor somewhere, you're now selling while educating. Remember, selling is all about educating. When you provide value, you get value. When you're a pest control salesperson, you want to educate people on how to get those spiders to stay away. How do we prevent those gophers from coming back? So you have to understand the different ways to deal with rodent control. Hey, can you put a thicker weed barrier down under where your planters are? Is that actually going to make a difference? Do you have to treat with, with bait or sticks? Are there, uh, you know, poisonous, non-poisonous methods? What, what kind of removal? Is there capture and release? Well, all of these things you should know. And the more you know, the more you can provide value and the more you can sell. This is really important.
But it's all founded on having a deep understanding of what you're doing. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to, uh, you know, let's say if you're doing uh, videography, right, for, um, for, for clients and, and weddings and things like that. Does that really mean you need to understand the manufacturing process of how they sharpen the lenses and in, in the glass and your Leica uh, camera lenses? Probably not, but you should have a really good deep understanding of how things like aperture work or f-stops, right? You should understand these and understand how to explain to a customer, hey, we could shoot in this lighting with this and it's gonna give us a bokeh. We should shoot in this lighting with this and it's gonna give us a very broad view without any kind of blur. Those are very important. So that way when you sell your creativity, not only are you showing that you have a deep understanding to a person who's trying to understand that you know, but they're actually more likely to hire you if they feel like you know more than they do. And this is all stuff you can study. So having a deep understanding, really, really critical. An example that I like to use is when you have, uh, I, I mean, I hate to stick with age, but let me, let me, I'll just use a real example. Uh, there's a family member in my family who, uh, you know, they're, they're not that old. Like, they should be capable of doing this stuff. They're like 65 or whatever. And uh, when, when, when there's a, uh, like, hey, we need you to uh, deposit this check online, for example. What, what they want is a checklist that's like, push this button, then open this blue button, over here uh, and then log in with this information and then press deposit and then press this account number and then make sure you take the picture in good light, right? Like this whole script. And when somebody asks for a script for something like this, it's fine if it's their first time around doing it, right? But if somebody constantly lives off a list like that, what this is a sign of is a lack of deep understanding. They don't actually understand what it means to have an app on a device. They don't even think that far because they're stuck in this programmatic world of, I don't know, man, I push this button, I push this button, if it don't work, I give up. Whereas if you had a deep understanding of computers, you'd know if you push this button, it didn't work. Well, maybe you should check if the cable's plugged into the back. Maybe you've got a power supply issue and you need to replace it. Maybe the battery's dead because it's a mobile device and you need to do a hard reset on it. When you have a deep understanding, you can troubleshoot issues. Why is the photo not working when you're taking it over here? Okay, well, remember, this is machine learning and machine image recognition. Maybe it's too dark and grainy, and even though it's showing me a, just a generic error, it's really just the system saying, like, hey, we can't recognize what's really going on here, right? Or maybe I should, instead of using a pencil to sign, I should be using a pen to sign. All of these things, really important, so you, so you know uh, when you have an understanding that when trouble comes up, you know how to solve those issues. You're not just memorizing where the buttons are, but you've actually paused and understood what's happening at every step of the way. And this kind of curiosity is something that you could practice as well by uh, taking out your phone and just go through every single setting menu that exists in your phone. So you take your phone out or your iPad or your computer and just be exploratory because after you've used the device for a while, like the first time you look at a device and you look in the settings menu, it's like overwhelming, right? You get a new device, it's like, oh man, 
Oh, that's, that's way too much. But after you've used the device for a while, then you go back into the settings menu, and you should really do this every few months. It's actually really great. You start going, oh, I didn't know I could tweak this to actually make myself more efficient. I didn't know I could do keyboard shortcuts, for example. Oh, I didn't know. I could turn on this feature and it makes the voice recognition a lot better or it lets me have more features on my watch or whatever. Those things are found by being curious, not by being a button pusher. Don't be a button pusher who's following a script. And don't get me wrong, I, I never want to say that checklists aren't bad. Checklists are really, really important because every human, no matter how deep your understanding is, will forget things. You will absolutely forget things. So guarantee that you're going to forget things. And the only way to prevent forgetting something is with a checklist. But that's different from having a deep understanding. So very important that curiosity relates to a deep understanding. Deep understanding actually helps you sell better. And that's what you're trying to do. Whether you're trying to sell at the door better, you're trying to sell your contracting customers better, you're trying to sell Matterport scanning technology better, very important. I'll give you one last example. Matterport scanning technology, okay? So uh, technically, the devices say you're not allowed to scan outdoors. And what the actual rule is, is when you get uh, uh, the sunlight, so you get UV light uh, that uh, casts light, and, you know, bright light, not shadowed light, but bright UV light and bright infrared light, these rays are coming uh, and, and splashing over a backyard, what actually happens is the LiDAR that is used in a Matterport scan to make a 3D scan interferes with that sunlight and it all looks like a black hole. In other words, the LiDAR isn't able to determine how far that concrete is or that tree is because the sunlight interferes with the way the LiDAR imaging works. The problem with that is now, if you go scan a house, and let's say you did the entire house and then you come out the back door or whatever, and you wanna scan out here, if it's super sunny, it's gonna be very difficult for you to get a scan of this, but you understand how this works, so you say, okay, no problem. I'll do special upsells at dusk and dawn for Matterport, oh, you can't see what I wrote, I just wrote dusk to dawn. I'll do uh, dusk and dawn Matterport scans and I'll upsell these right where the sun's kind of going down where everything's shady, or you do it on an overcast day, then you can do them all day long. And now you just have this clean slate of basically shade, and you know you could go back here, scan, 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 and all of a sudden, you have the entire exterior scanned. You just are aware, because you have a deep understanding, that you can't do that in a high sunlight environment. So once you get rid of sunlight, either through cloud cover or dusk dawn times, now you can upsell a better product because you know you can't do it when that crazy light is coming in. But it also helps you be a better scanner because now when you go into a room and you see that the window blinds are tilted such that the sun is shining in and bringing all this sunlight into like a little window square on the floor, you've seen that before, right? You walk into a room and it's just like there's this big, really bright spot on the floor because the window over here is just letting that sunlight in like crazy right here. Well, that shows up as a black hole on a Matterport scan. Again, uh, the UVs or infrareds, whatever, interfering with the LiDAR and doesn't work. But because you have a deep understanding, what do you do before you even waste your time scanning? You close that to block out uh, the sun so you don't get that kind of shade and you actually get an appropriate scan. So deep understanding 
of everything you do is critical. You do not want to be a button pusher. Again, differentiate it from using checklists. Checklists are good, but those are for remembering. Actually using this as your life script, sad. Not where you want to go, and if this is you, probably don't want to be an entrepreneur, but that's okay. I have a feeling you're well in advance of this. If there's one thing you do in life when you begin an entrepreneurial journey, it needs to be what we talk about in this video. And it needs to not be what we also talk about in this video. We'll divide that, we'll break that down, okay? Here's the thing. If you decide to become a hustler, a hustler can be something that is a lifetime goal for you. That is, you can be an employee while you're 18 to 25. You can, be, you can be an employee for the first 20 years of your working career, 30 years. You could always be a hustler, whether you're young, whether you're older, or as an employee, you could be a hustler, working your way up to a higher level of pay, a higher level of management, a higher level of responsibility, providing a higher level of value. You can always be a hustler. But what you must remember is that everything you do should create a net positive to your resume. This is really, really, really important to your resume, okay? Most folks who first think about the idea of side hustle think about the dollar. They think about how much money am I going to make? They don't think about how much am I going to learn? And that is the biggest, most critical mistake you can make in life. It would be better, even though it's illegal in most states, especially in California, it would be better to work for free and learn something that could help you produce millions of dollars of potential future revenue, or learn a lot of things, or learn efficiencies that make you a better, happier, more optimistic, less stressed, more efficient person and worker. It would be better to learn that and earn nothing, but then take those skills and earn a lot, than it would be to get paid what seems like a little bit more than average, but learn nothing. This is why there are certain jobs you should, quite frankly, never do. There are jobs that don't benefit your resume. Let me ask you this. Would you put this on your resume? Uber slash Lyft driver. Would you put that on your resume? Maybe if you were applying to be a chauffeur, but otherwise, does it make sense to put Uber and Lyft on your resume? No. What, you, you don't even necessarily get watched by anyone other than customers who might leave you a review. So maybe you could say, oh, well, I'm a 4.8 star driver on Uber or Lyft. Okay, cool. Cars are going to be driving themselves within the next 10 to 15 years. Your job is replaceable. Now, if you're a truck driver, that, that's different, right? That's more complicated, but even those will become automated at some point in the future. But Uber, Lyft, I mean, maybe you can argue you have a customer service benefit here, but let's be real. It's not something you would want to put on your resume. So I would rather make less money working not in the gig economy doing, uh, you know, working for that uh, food conglomerate called Dior Dachet, right, DoorDash. It does, just doesn't sound fancy on a resume. It's, it might sound fancy if you say it like a joke, but it's not fancy on a resume. What's another thing? I mean, think about some of these things. If you're driving a forklift, loading up a cruise ship dock, it's a way to make some extra money. But what's your upward mobility? I mean, the supervisor of forklift managers? I, it's, it's just not something that's going to help you on a resume. 
What actually would help you more on a resume would saying, I launched a company and I worked my butt off for two years and I realized it wasn't for me. I failed. And instead I went back to school and got a license or I became this, this, this and this license so I can apply for a job and, and work for a company. See, because failing is actually part of succeeding. For you to be able to say, look, I failed. It shows that not only did you try, but you also learned. And not only did you try and learn, but then you revised. You didn't stick with a failure. You realized you gave it a try. You realized it wasn't going to work. So you learned from your mistakes and then you moved on, revised and got a license in something. You became a you know, coder, a CPA, a doctor, a nurse, uh, you know, an anesthesiologist. They make a lot of money, okay? And, and, and you moved on. That's okay. That is something that actually helps promote your resume. In fact, employers like to see it because if you failed as an entrepreneur, an employer might be thinking, well, you're less likely to go do that again. <laughs> it's actually great. People want to see that you've tried something and have failed because, again, you, you are a trier and you learn and then you adapt. But what does not help you is something where there's really little chance of failure. Forklift, DoorDash, Uber, right? These, the gig economy is not where you're going to get experience. You would be better off being a server at a restaurant serving food and then showing that you could go from server to shift manager to getting a mixologist license and becoming a bartender. That progression will help you a lot more and quite frankly that sort of customer service will probably help you a lot more than this. So be very, very critical of somebody who starts with, oh well I, I, I need money versus I need to learn. This is also true in hiring, and we'll talk about that uh, in, in, in another lecture. But uh, this is something very, very critical, and it's so important that you internalize. The most important thing for you is, of course, you've got to get your bare minimums covered. You've got to be able to survive, right? But beyond that, you've got to think about net positives to your resume. If, 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 if something you're doing is not a net positive to your resume, why do it? It's a waste of time. Because the reality is, the money you're making at Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Forklift, whatever, these are the kinds of things that should be nominal to your income in the future when you actually utilize that resume and implement what you've learned or the licenses you've gotten. So, very important lecture. Keep this in mind. It's always what is a positive to your resume, not necessarily only a positive to your bottom line. So how do you increase motivation and optimism? Well, in my opinion, you have two great choices. Number one, you plan. And number two, you work towards that plan. So you work towards some form of a goal. Now here are some examples. You can plan to take a licensing test. You can plan to go on an evening, uh, you know, let's say like an event, some form of uh, uh, some, something fun to look forward to. Maybe it's an escape room, maybe it's uh, dinner with friends and family, whatever, right? You can plan for some form of product launch or business launch, right? This could be the beginning of a business launch. Those are some of the most uh, exciting times when you're getting ready to launch something new, right? Like actually doing the work isn't even as fun as, as, as getting ready for that launch and launching something. Uh, then, of course, you can make 
progress towards your plans. And these are things that create the feeling of success because what you've done is rather than leaving your feeling of success up to the market or up to consumers or people or your tax return or what people say about you, you're actually leaving your success up to yourself because you are making a plan. For example, plan number one, which test do I want to take? Plan number two, what are the requirements for that test? Step three, study. I'm going to break that study up into micro plans. And when I check those boxes off and I move through that, uh, then I feel like I'm making progress. When you pass the test, you feel like you've made a lot of progress, right? And look, these, none of these are subject to anybody but yourself. You're not reliant upon the market to tell you, oh yeah, you're going to pass. You're not reliant on consumers or, or other businesses deciding, oh yeah, we want you to pass that test. We want to use your services. No, it's all on you. And that is actually quite motivating. So getting tested, you know, you don't want to be like a serial studier or like a serial licensor where you're just getting a license and everything, but you don't ever do anything, right? You want to be in a situation where you're actually utilizing these. The point is launching businesses, having events planned, scheduling uh, that vacation, scheduling things, and then following your own plan can actually create a lot of motivation. The same can actually be done if you're in an expansionary phase of your business. You say, all right, what can we do to uh, launch a new system? For example, you're a real estate agent and you decide, what can we do to get some more business? How about every week for the next 10 weeks we do a challenge? We're going to do an open house every single Sunday. We're going to try to meet X many more people. We're going to try to distribute X many more business cards. And at the end of those, uh, those 10 weeks, how did we do? And the cool thing is every single week you could go check, check, check. You're making progress towards your goals. Motivation comes from small successes. And you can manipulate yourself into feeling like you are achieving and making goals. And that is what you want to do. Trick yourself into getting motivated so you could use that motivation to get real success and build real wealth. And then you hopefully find that you, once you're on this sort of flywheel of success, that success just compounds upon itself and you could really build your wealth. Hey everyone, so I know work from home culture has made it very easy to basically always be in shorts and a t-shirt. But the reality is if you want to get out there in the business world and you want to make money, you've got to also dress the part if you want to be taken seriously. Now that doesn't anymore in 2022, 3, 4 plus mean you have to be in a full suit and tie. I personally do believe that the younger you are, the more you should dress the part and the more perfect your appearance should be. So for example, when I got into real estate at 18 years old, for me, I believed I will not let anything I can control be an objection for me to be an entrepreneur. So the same would be true if I were a, a videographer or photographer. 
I'm going to be taken much more seriously if I'm simply in a dress shirt. And I don't even have to wear slacks. Like these are these are a type of jeans. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't. I mean, and then they don't look like jeans, but but they are a type of jeans. They're actually pretty nice. Uh, but anyway, the point is, the younger you are, in my opinion, the more perfect you should look because you're taken more seriously in any kind of field that you're in. Even if you're a contractor, a contractor who dresses like this, a little bit more white collar, is clearly somebody who's here to help provide you a service verbally and not with their hands, right? And that's what a contractor is doing. They're working you through invoicing. They're working you through a proposal. They're working you through recommendations for your home. Now, nobody's going to expect that you're swinging a hammer like this, but when you are working to get clients to sell your Matterport service, to sell your loan service, to sell door-to-door, you should look the part of somebody who not only isn't super young, right? The more well you dress, the, the older you look, but you should also look like you're put together because how could you possibly provide good service for somebody if you're not even put together appropriately? So, for example, when I was 18, I would always wear a full suit uh, and tie, which really isn't terribly different from what I'm wearing now. It would simply be a tie, slacks, jacket. Very simple. Uh, now, this is obviously a little bit different when you're on YouTube uh, and, and you're kind of just making videos like, hey, we're just, we're just friends, I'm going to sit at this desk, and oh man, look at what Jay Pound said today. You know, like the hoodie, the t-shirt, sometimes that goes along with, with the content, right? Uh, and matching your content is important. Like, for example, if you go to a skate park and, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to sell Gatorades, you want to show up in a suit and tie or do you want to be like, you know, one of the skaters, right? So matching your audience does matter. But when you're going out into the business world and you're trying to be an entrepreneur, I, I believe the younger you are, the more important the full suit and tie is. When you are younger, I, I think there is a benefit to having uh, like a little bit of, of, of stubble. Obviously, that wouldn't be applicable for women, but for, for women business suits when you're younger, very, very important. I think it's super important. The pants, the suit jackets, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and obviously a blouse or something like that. Uh, I do think that once you get to probably uh, 28 plus, uh, you could really maybe go more with uh, a slacks and uh, just a shirt. Right, something like that. And this is something that you could really do until you get into your 50s, where really the uh, slacks and a polo becomes more access acceptable, potentially even in your 40s, right? But, but this is my expectation of, remember, like the older you look, by default, the more experience you're deemed to have. So if you are younger, you should probably dress more to the part that you're trying to fulfill. You know, if you're 20 years old, and you're a loan officer, you don't want to be in polo in a polo and slacks, or, or I mean, I, I suppose that's still okay to some degree, right? But you certainly don't want to be in shorts and a t-shirt. T-shirts should almost be banned from the entrepreneurial culture. Again, depending on the field you're in, but I would say for 99% of entrepreneurial endeavors, you should never wear t-shirts. Like You could just go through your wardrobe and remove all t-shirts that you have in there, uh, with the exception of having like a little spot for workout clothing, totally fine. Now, one of the things that I really think is nice about the, uh, the, the sort of slacks or jeans, the clean looking jeans, and the white shirt, is you can really do anything uh, with, with your outfit. Uh, and that's because I could obviously put a suit jacket on right now, but it doesn't even necessarily have to be a suit jacket. See, I can go over and I can grab suits, uh, or not suits, I could grab jackets that would work for different occasions, right? This is, um, 
This is a hoodie jacket. It's obviously pretty vibrant over here. And uh, I can put this on. There we go. And this now tones down my outfit a lot. This is now a lot more casual. Uh, if I want to pull this out, I can. If you wear a French cuff, you certainly want to. So pull out the white just a little bit so you can see. I am still wearing my shirt, right? Gives you a little bit more contrast as well. So this is just an example now of, hey, now we're a little bit more casual. We're maybe in a little bit of a chilly environment, but this has really casualed this down a lot uh, while still having that underlying professionalism, right? But it doesn't have to be a hoodie. Uh, even though this works, it doesn't have to be a hoodie. Let's go with, how about this? We're gonna go with, obviously you know a jacket would look good, like a business jacket, but let's go with something else. Let's go uh, also a little bit more casual, but this time let's assume maybe if this is, uh, you know, uh, a, a night out with friends for, for drinks and an escape room or whatever, this is now a, a, you know, a casual meeting with a client for sushi, uh, right? Uh, so now we've got a leather jacket here. We still have our business uh, attire on, right? We're still here to do business, but now we, we have something again that's casualed us down a little bit, uh, but it still looks professional. Now, uh, you've got plenty of options in this. Uh, you can, of course, also go with more of a wintry jacket. Uh, in addition, uh, it, while still looking professional, see, I could show properties in something like this, depending on the weather. Oh, went through the wrong hole over there. Depending on the weather, you can go through uh, various different options here. This is just another example of a jacket. It's actually convertible to a vest as well. And that's why I'm missing the hole here. There we go. But look at this. Now this almost looks like a suit jacket, right? But it's actually just a, a, a winter jacket. Uh, so it gives you some options. But a, a, again, the point is just to say that this base outfit helps you minimize the decisions that you're having to make every single day. If you can wake up in the morning and go, I know I'm putting on slacks and a white shirt, you don't even have to think about colors, matching, anything. You could wear basically any jacket in the world you want with this and you're good, depending on the level of casualness or professionalness you are. If I wanted to look even more professional, I could put a suit jacket on top of this, a blazer, a sports coat, whatever. Uh, it takes it up another level. But the cool thing is with this sort of base, you can go throughout your day. You can be on Zoom calls and look professional. You could go outside in the cold and look professional. You could go to dinner with your friends and look professional. Everywhere you go, you look professional. Because one of the downside risks is, let's say you're out with your friends, and uh, rather than wearing uh, this sort of base and let's say that orange hoodie we saw, you're wearing you know, a t-shirt that's like, hey, 420, and you've got you know, shorts on, and, and you, you kind of don't look well put together, your hair is not done, whatever, and all of a sudden the client is also there. It's gonna kind of make them think, ah, okay, here's somebody who's really not taking their work fully seriously. Even though it's off time, it doesn't look like they just came from work. It looks like they've kind of been BSing all day long. So, so you could lose a little bit of that respect layer. Whereas if you have that core base that you're wearing, and you're just changing to a, a, a hoodie, now it's like, hey, you're out with your friends for an escape room or drinking or movies or dinner or whatever, and, and you're fooling around, you know, just having fun, that's okay. It looks like you just came from work and now it's after work, so it's acceptable. So that, that core 
uniform, so to speak. So easy to do because you could just buy yourself 10 of these shirts and 10 of these pants. They don't even have to be expensive. Go on Amazon. Nobody really cares what the brands are. And, uh, and, and always look the part. So always look the part with your clothing. Very, very important. Hey everyone, me Kevin here. Look, this might sound basic, but optimism is a studied result for better success in entrepreneurship, less stress in entrepreneurship and life in general. Overall, you tend to be more resistant to problems as they come up throughout your investments or your business career, and ultimately, you tend to make more money. One of the easiest ways to actually be more optimistic on your day-to-day -day life or throughout your day-to-day -day life is to do this very, very simple thing. Just smile. It's remarkable, but I'll tell you this. When I was first a real estate agent and I had absolutely no experience whatsoever, when I went to broker tour meetings with other real estate agents, they'd say, man, that's the guy I want to work with. He comes in here early every day, he's ready to work, and he's just happy to be here. That's the kind of person I want to work with. And the same thing was true for clients. I'd sit down with clients at a coffee shop, and I purposely met with clients at a coffee shop because I knew other people would eavesdrop onto my conversations. But I didn't know this. Not only would people eavesdrop onto my conversations, but when they later came to my open houses, they'd say things like, hey, I saw you at the coffee shop talking to those clients of yours, and, and those could have been brand new clients, right? And oftentimes they were because it was a brand new business. I was trying to convince people to work with me. Anyway, so I'd be at an open house and they'd say, hey, I saw you at the coffee shop the other day and you were explaining you know, uh, the real estate cycle to, to your clients. And I have to say, you just seemed really excited about it. It seemed like you were just so into it. And when it's time for us to sell our house, we want to call you. And those sorts of conversations actually ended up turning into deals a few years later. It was remarkable how much came from just being optimistic now and, 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 and smiling, being happy about what you're doing. Now, there are some tricks to this because usually unhappiness and sadness comes from a few different things, right? It comes from a loss or a lack of direction. Because when we don't have a, a, a direction, then what we end up with is hopelessness because we have no direction. And so one of the big things that I find when it comes to feeling happy or feeling uh, excited about what you're doing is knowing that things in the future are going to get better. If you think things in the future are going to be worse, you're not gonna be walking around with a smile. You're not gonna be excited about what you're doing. You're gonna be sad. I remember very distinctly being back in high school and I did a survey and I thought I was going to win the argument in that classroom. I thought this was going to be my big slam dunk. This was speech and debate class. And I said, who here wakes up in the morning and thinks that tomorrow and next week and next month and next year is going to be better for them? And I thought for sure, everybody was gonna raise their hands. I got like 5% of people. I lost that debate so hard because I had this misimpression that everybody was kind of like me in that moment where I'm like, things are gonna get better. And keep in mind, when I was in high school, I had C's and D's, I was dropping classes to play video games, I've never taken the SAT until it was too late and got a terrible score. I had no idea what I was doing in high school, but 
I had this really weird optimism. I'll never forget. Uh, this is almost a little emotional. I remember sitting down at Emory University for a speech and debate tournament that I had also lost in. But anyway, I sat down on these beautiful stairs to, to some building or a chapel or whatever it was. It was at Emory University. So amazing, beautiful campus. I sat down and uh, this girl walks up and sits next to me. She was in our speech and debate class. And she said, hey, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen in the future? I mean, you know, like, doesn't it make you nervous what the future holds? And she was like really like type A. Everything had to be like perfect, perfect, perfect. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not really like that. I'm very kind of go with the flow. Uh, but I also like making sure that we're succeeding, right? So I like flowing with success, right? But at the time, I'm like, you know, the truth is I, I don't have the answer. I, I don't know what the future is going to hold. But I have this belief, and I told her this, 16, 15 years old or whatever. I told her, I believe wholeheartedly that I could start at Walmart as a bagger. And I'll work my way up to store manager. And then I'll end up getting transferred to corp. And I think one day I could be the CEO of Walmart by working my way up from the bottom. Now, obviously, I'm not the CEO of Walmart today. I actually think uh, I'm, I'm in a better spot. I'm mean, not trying to compare myself to that because I think that'd be pretty cool. Uh, but I really like where I am now. But the point is, I really had this belief, this belief that no matter how bad things were today, I know because I'm so willing to outwork my competition that I'll start at any level and I'll progress from there. And I believe this is where, beyond just suggesting, oh, just go through your life and smile, if you convince yourself that if you go through life optimistically, thinking, you know what, this is it. Maybe this is just my bottom. Maybe this year is my bottom and it's time for change. And you ask yourself, can it really get much worse? I mean, knock on wood, there's no health issue that you end up combating, but you've got to ask yourself, if you're trying to develop and grow, do you really expect to go backwards? And if you don't expect to go backwards, then wouldn't you say you would expect in your life to at least be able to go from where you are now two steps forward? Don't you think you can get the next two steps forward to where even if you end up getting that one step back, you're going to get another two steps forward. And what happens? Well, you look back and you go, yeah, I am in a better position than where I was. Let me show you how simple that could be. Let's say that you have a, a career. You're a cop. And you're like, you know what? I'm kind of tired of working law enforcement. It's lots of hours, lots of overtime. Let me show you just how simple your future could actually be better by basically doing nothing. You're a cop. You're making $80,000 a year. You go buy a condo for $300,000 a year. After 30 years of doing nothing, just making your payment rather than paying rent, you will own that property, except that property will probably be worth a million bucks when you go to retire, right? Just because oh, 30 years from now, it'll probably be worth a lot more. Now, you don't even have to worry about your cost of capital. Oh, what about all that interest you're paying in the meantime? Why? Because you have to pay to live somewhere. And this isn't even to presume that you're going to be living there for 30 years. But the cool thing is, in two years from now, you could decide, you know what? I want to move. I want to move up to a $350,000 place. And what do you do? You rent out that first one. Now you've got two properties on that chain. 
So you could literally do nothing. Just do your job, milk your job, and use your job as a tool for qualifying for these things. Build your wealth basically passively by doing nothing. That's just to show you how time, as long as you set yourself up properly now, as soon as possible, for example, you get into owning real estate, you could literally do nothing and end up in a better situation in the future. Real estate ownership is the perfect way to go from doing nothing to actually being better in time. But think about the leverage that you get by actually having experience in things that you're doing. Here's an example, though, uh, of sort of a difference of, of optimism, right? I read this, and this was remarkable. I, I read this comment. This person said, hey, uh, he wrote this comment on a flight channel I watched the other day, and they said, I've been a radio tower operator for two years, and I never fully went through with getting my license. I took a few first classes and never went back. Do you think if I go back today, I'll make it? In other words, I'll be able to become a pilot. And I thought to myself, damn, that is such a depressive outlook. You are so uncertain with your own ability to be confident that you have to ask a YouTube creator if you think you could become a pilot. This is not to cast shade on a pilot or any profession that exists. It's just to say, the licensing standards for things in America are generally that you're safe and proficient. That's like a 70 pass rate, okay? Like, let me put it this way. You don't have to be good to get licensed. Let me just tell you, it is possible, okay? In the last 12 years, think about what I've done. I've become a real estate agent at 18 years old. As soon as my two years work experience passed, I became a broker. I took the licensing test to become a broker. So I was a broker at 20. Uh, then about three, four years later, I thought, oh, there's an opportunity here to make money in lending. So I became an MLO, which is a mortgage loan originator at 24, and thought, gee, I can make money from this. So I took the licensing test, I studied, Pass the test. It's flashcards, folks. It's flashcards. Kind of like flying too. Of course, you actually have to pass the flying test because you have an FAA certified, uh, you know, pilot uh, verifying that you're capable of flying a plane, as you know we should be. But anyway, uh, real estate agent at 18. Flashcards. Pass the test. Go. Then now go work. Right. Like passing the test should be the basic part. Broker at 20. MLO at 24. Uh, then after that, at 25, what do I do? Become a licensed contractor. Then I try to get into doing uh, uh, asbestos and lead certifications and removals. So I'm on the phone with OSHA. Hey, I want to do this. How do I make it happen? I know they're going to put me through hoops and hurdles, but guess what? If other people are doing it, I can do it. And that's a motto that you should always have. If somebody else is doing it, you can do it too. So then I decide, okay, cool. Uh, I uh, now want to do uh, some photography for my clients' listings because I'm tired of waiting for drone pilots to come out. But in order to do drone work for commercial purposes, you have to have a commercial FAA license to do that, uh, which, which honestly I think is a waste of time. But I took an FAA drone pilot certification test, which you might think is like a joke, but I'll, let me tell you this. It was the hardest test I've ever taken. It was, it was like a watered-down pilot's test. It was hard. So I passed that at 26. Then I'm like, okay, well, now I'm 30. I want to launch my own ETF. Oh, I have to be a registered investment advisor. I have to pass a securities exam to become that. All right, give me the book. I guess I'll start studying. Okay, 930, pass that. 
and it's like, what else do I want? If somebody's like, hey, what do you want to become next? Do you want to become a pilot? All right, give me the book. Fine, I'll do that by 31. No, I'm not saying I want to, but, but the point is, like these, these are things that all individually, each one of these individuals will make you over $100,000 a year. As a real estate agent, you could easily make over $200,000 a year. I know people who aren't even that good of agents who are making over $200,000 a year. As a broker, you get other agents under your, your uh, brokerage, you could be making over $300,000 to $500,000 a year. I know lenders who are easily making over $200,000 a year. Contractors, come on, man, $200,000, easy. Uh, and, and I mean, that's not to say, I guess I shouldn't say easy because it comes with a lot of stress. You have to build a big book of business, you have to deal with clients, and, and some people just don't want that kind of stress. Contractor's probably the worst out of all of these. I hate to say it because it's so hard. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I wouldn't recommend being a drone pilot. Uh, but, uh, but hey, I did work for engineers and they gave me like 800 bucks cash for a few hours flying a drone around for them. It was great. Uh, register, that was back in the day though when these first came out, these certifications. Registered investment advisor, I, I'm certain you can make over $150,000 to $200,000 a year doing work like this over time, right? Commercial airline pilot, oh, yeah, I mean, easy $150,000 to $200,000 here, right? So my point is, all of these things are things that, that make a substantial amount of money and put you in sort of the top 5% of an income threshold. And uh, with the exception of the last one, uh, they're all things that I've done. And it's not because I've gone in and left comments on people's YouTube channel going, oh, do you think I could do it? Dude, nobody, nobody is going to be there for you to say you can do it that has any meaningful impact on your life. Now, I, I think I'll have a meaningful impact on your life, not only through these programs and videos, but, but just by, yes, saying you can do it. But ultimately, the person who has to decide, can I do this or not, is you. And this is why it's so critical that you go through life thinking, look, there are going to be setbacks, right? Kevin goes through life with what I call a shield, okay? So here's me, all right, and uh, I'm holding on to this shield, and this right here is life. And life is just gonna keep throwing garbage and BS at you to the where this shield gets really, really beat up and wrinkled and dented. And sometimes it'll even push you back in your journey. But the point is, I take that shield, I hold on, and I push forward. And no matter what, the net direction I'm going in is forward. Uh, and my belief is that if you're not net moving forward, if you're doing the same thing without asking yourself, what's next in my life, then, then you are getting pushed back by life. And that's depressing. That's how you lead to depression, sadness, uh, and, and hopelessness, because you're getting pushed back. Every single day, if you're not moving forward, you're getting pushed back. How many newspapers have you read today? How many articles have you read today? How many books have you read in the last year? How many audiobooks have you listened to in the last year? How many like, times have you gone to the gym in the last year? How many times have you looked up in this last year, I wonder what it would take to do that certain job. I wonder what it would take to get certified as a programmer. I wonder what it would take to go to a boot camp as a programmer. I wonder what it would take to start a business. And rather than actually just thinking, oh, I'd like to start a business one day, you actually looked into it. And you thought to yourself, hmm, I actually, you know, I can do this. We can make this happen. How many times have you had that thought over the last year? If the answer is zero, it's a problem. And so now is the time for you to flip-flop and to make a, like, make a decision in your life and go, all right, now's the time to actually do some planning and uh, go forward. Because we want to go forward with optimism. 
So in the next lectures, we'll talk a little bit about balance and planning, and then we'll get into, obviously, some detailed lectures. In my opinion, in addition to looking the part, you also want to deal with basic things that you can deal with. Like, for example, uh, see, I've got like a little bit of a blemish right here on my forehead, kind of, it's like, it's just like, it's a little distracting. Uh, you know, there are solutions for this, and it's not hard, and it doesn't change your, your sexual orientation or anything, but it's very, very simple. Brush, powder, okay, like, I don't know, this, this color is a little bit too light. Uh, for me, but there you go, just a little bit. And what it does is it not only kind of hides this, but it also smooths out kind of your, your look a little bit. Uh, and it removes shininess from your face. And this is important, it's very, very simple to do. Uh, you know, these cost like eight bucks, some of these cost like 20 bucks. You get one of these every six months or whenever you need it. Uh, but the point is, Again, you don't want anything to be an objection or a distraction. So like, if your teeth are really messed up or you've got a lot of blemishes or you're not shaving uh, at, at least to the point of being clean and neat, you know, everything's just kind of going everywhere, uh, it's going to be harder to sell. Uh, the same is true. Like if you don't shower every day, you know, or you don't wear basic things like uh, deodorant or uh, you're not styling your hair to at least, uh, you know, keep it clean or keep it together. I think these are very basic issues that will hold you back in entrepreneurship. People are very judgmental and they're going to determine very quickly whether they think you're kind of like lazy or a sleazebag or whatever. And, and you want to eliminate those objections. So one of the things that I think is critically important is don't try to overdo your appearance, uh, unless of course you're younger and, and you're in a professional environment where you're wearing a suit, that's not overdoing. But for example, you don't necessarily need to be 18 wearing a suit and then wearing a bunch of cologne. That's not necessary. Like if you showered and then you have deodorant that you put on and then you had a suit, you don't need to spray a bunch of stuff all over yourself. It's kind of like, you walk into a home for sale and uh, it's like, hmm, why is there incense everywhere? Or why is there a Glade plug-in? Like, what are you covering up? You know, this is like the lazy out. So uh, there are absolutely things everybody can do to very simply improve their appearance towards other people. And I think those are very critical. If you don't have a hairstyle yet, pick one and experiment. It doesn't have to be perfect day one, pick one. Uh, you know, look up some celebrities that, that, uh, that you like and then go to a hairdresser and say, that's what I want. Just have it on your phone. It's not that hard. You don't even have to print out the picture anymore and bring the magazine like the old days. You just pull it up on your phone. You know what I think is one of the worst things to exist in this world? It's something that I believe leads to, so we're gonna go in reverse here, okay? I'm not gonna tell you what this fill in the blank is just yet but it leads to something that I consistently see. And it's really, really sad, but I think it's important to think about this because it's something that could actually light a fire in your life in a very positive way. So this thing frequently leads to the following. Idleness, resentment, hate, and boredom which boredom often also leads to hate, also leads to resentment, and also leads to idleness. And all of these things together lead to less, see, less success, because you're not doing anything. And when you have less success, 
What do you also have less of? Less happiness. Hmm, that's really interesting. So let's walk backwards. When in your life are people often idle, bitter and resentful, sometimes hateful, really bored or boring, and rarely in this phase of life do they have much new success and therefore new happiness? I'll tell you in just a moment. There are exceptions to this. I just want to be clear. Some people have found a way to solve this because they find a new definition for success. And that's okay. But to make the point first, folks who tend to be most idle, resentful, hateful, and bored are one of two people. They are either, in my opinion, retired or jobless. It's interesting. When you think about it this way, you realize, wait a minute, that's true. The more time you spend sitting around bored, the less successful you feel, which boy, doesn't that make sense. You can't have a good shift at work if you're not working. You can't make progress on something if you ain't doing anything. <laughs> You know, you can't feel successful if you're watching Netflix all day long or playing Xbox all day long. Now, don't get me wrong, you feel like you had some really good moves, but the reality is when you open your front door and you go for a walk outside, you're like, dang, I didn't do anything for the last week. It doesn't actually create lasting happiness. Now, some folks in retirement have been able to rejigger what success means as family time and raising grandchildren, and that's fine. That's noble, I think that's great. Uh, some have found that success can be defined as success with their uh, partner uh, and, uh, and travel. But I hate to say it, I see a lot of people retire and get divorced in retirement because they end up getting sick of each other and they actually have nothing to work on together. It's very similar with what you have when people are jobless and have no mission, at least if you're jobless. Be studying something. Think about all of the opportunities America gives you. You want to be a nurse. You could easily go to a community college and potentially at no cost become a registered nurse within the next two years. Hands down, you could do it. You want to be a CPA? I guarantee you, you could pull it off within the next three years. You want to be a computer programmer making over six figures, you could potentially go to a coding boot camp, work for ADK uh, a, a year out of the gate, and, and then lateral after six to 12 months and maybe work uh, for 120K, right? So you've got programming. You want to be a real estate agent? You could do this in three months. Of course, being a real estate agent uh, or being a licensed lender uh, is a little bit more of a grind, a snowball grind. So you could get these licenses sooner, but it's harder to make money with these. Whereas once you have these licenses uh, or these qualifications, you can make money quicker, right? But then you have sort of a ceiling potentially here, unless you have your own practice or your own computer programming company. Uh, whereas over here, you're self-employed, right? But the point is, look at all these options. Again, we've talked about this in other options as well. You want to go be a pilot, you can do that. There's so many things that you could do that you could be studying for. And the cool thing about America is you don't actually have to make a choice and stick with it forever. You're allowed to change your mind. America is the land where you can change your mind as much as you freaking want. And it is so beautiful 
because it should always give you something to look forward to. And when you have something to look forward to, guess what you are not? You are not an idle person. When you have something to look forward to, you're an optimistic person because you're looking forward to success. And so resentment goes down. Empathy goes up. When empathy goes up, hate goes down. Boredom goes down. Now it might be stressful because you have to study for something, but ultimately you pass that test you feel success. Now you move on to the next mission. How many doors am I going to knock on doing door-to-door -door sales? That's another thing. People poop on things like door-to-door uh, uh, -door sales, which is actually really an incredible way to build sales skills. And you could do it uh, in a summer. You work for something like an active pest control or something for three months out of the year. Most people burn out of this. Okay, so really, really high burnout over here. But uh, some, some really incredible skills you can learn from door-to-door uh, -door sales that, that become uh, lifetime lessons here. But there's no way you're doing door-to-door -door sales and, uh, and, and feeling idle. Uh, you might feel like you're grinding because your feet hurt all day long. <laughs> that might be true. But you know what? Sometimes at the end of the day, you feel like crap because you've been working all day long. You actually think to yourself, you know what? I did get a lot done, though. And so even though you could be in pain, you could be in pain but be successful or feeling happy because you've accomplished. Accomplishment is usually what is missing from those who are jobless or those who are retired. And the whole point of this is to say, wow, what can you do right now to make sure you are focused on a goal? Right? People always say, oh, write down your goals. Okay, so right now ask yourself, what is your goal? What are you going to be doing in the next 12 months that's different from what you're doing now? If you're working at Jamba Juice making smoothies and you're like, well, crap, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in the next year. Let me tell you, the first thing you should be thinking about is how can I get the different colored hat to be a manager at this joint? So what do you do? Hey, manager, what can I do to start taking on some management responsibilities? Oh, learn X, Y, Z and become really proficient at these things. Make sure you know all your recipes, whatever, right? Okay, there's your goal. It's that simple. Every single job you're in, career you're in, uh, class you're taking, entrepreneurial venture you are a part of, you could be thinking to yourself, what can I do to make this better next year? Every single year, you should be able to look back and go, wow, I have matured so far from last year. If your life feels like this, where you're actually, uh, it's not a word, but dematuring, where you're going backwards, you got to change. This should always be your life. And that's not to say it's straight up. You know, this comes in zigzags, right? Sometimes two steps forward, one step back. We know that. But at least your goal should always be up and away because this leads to idleness, resentment, hate, boredom, lack of success, and unhappiness. And that's what we're trying to stay away from because it's really difficult for unhappy people to actually build wealth. Let's talk about passive income as an entrepreneur. For the most part, it is a distraction. I hate to say it, but folks go out of their way to figure out how can I make an extra 50 bucks a day or whatever, and that's great. Well, that would add up to be a nice little extra income. Here's the problem with 
passive income, so to speak. And this is not to say that you can't have businesses where you can make money without doing anything. For example, while I'm recording this video, I'm working on making this video, but somebody could buy one of my other courses, and then that feels like passive income to some extent, right? But here's the problem with a traditional form of passive income, not a business form of passive income, because obviously as an entrepreneur, your goal is to build a business uh, where, where money can be made when you're not there. But obviously, you wake up every day and you have to work in your business to some extent by either planning uh, new features or, or expansion plans or whatever it is you're doing for your business. But traditional passive income, when folks think of usually what they think of is dividend income, uh, real estate income, or maybe some form of, in this market, bond market income. Basically, any of this sort of passive income that comes through investments, right? Passive income from investments, to be differentiated from passive income from, from business, is generally not what you want to focus on while you're in the wealth building stage of life. And it's generally only when you are in the payoff phase of life, which is on this side, which is where you're paying off your mortgages, you're increasing your passive income, and you're working less, right? This phase of life is work less. This phase of life here is work more. Hustlers are here, right? We're at that beginning of that curve. Or maybe we're in the expansion plans of the curve. We're not, people talk retirement and we're not even thinking about that yet because we're like, retirement is the antithesis of me, <laughs> right? We want to put in effort and work and build wealth because we want this line to be as large as possible so we can build an empire or business or something really successful and go through life enjoying the journey, right? Because ultimately it's all about the journey, not the destination. And so, some of the problems that folks run into when they focus heavily on real estate, bond income, dividend income, real estate cash flow in this case, right, is that when you do get passive income from these investments, you can actually have a, a few pitfalls that come out of this. The first pitfall that's pretty dang common that comes out of uh, uh, these sort of passive income uh, elements here is it gives you the feeling of stability uh, f at the cost of taxation. Now think about what that means for a moment. When you feel stable and you're like, well, I'm, I'm doing nothing and I'm making enough money to pay for my rent and my food, uh, I'm not really building my wealth, but my passive income pays for my rent, whatever. Uh, now you feel stable, wh wh uh, what does that mean? It means you're not actually motivated to go out and work. What motivation do you have to grow? Y you don't. You don't have that motivation anymore uh, because you don't need it. The passive income actually saps your motivation. It takes away your incentive to grow. In addition to that, when you receive passive income during your earning years, what you're actually doing is you're taking your salary or your income and now that is sort of your base income taxation level. So at your 1040, you're paying a base rate of taxes because let's say if you make $60,000, you know, the, the free tiers of income tax, like $10,000 and below, those are already absorbed. The low income taxes of 40,000 below are already absorbed. And your salary and income of 60K has already brought you to a level where you're paying like 20, 25% in taxes. 
Now you add passive income on top of that. That passive income is actually being taxed at essentially the higher levels, that 20, 25, 30%, depending on what state you're in. So now what you've really done is you've taken away some of your motivation by giving you a false sense of stability when, when really, you know, what, what's another uh, 50 bucks of, of passive income a day, you're talking 1500 bucks, is that really going to make a long-term difference in the building of your wealth? Is that really what you want to hustle to? That's what you want to aspire to? That's, that's not enough. Uh, not only is it not enough, but it's not particularly motivating. Uh, if anything, it's quite frankly a little bit depressing. So, Stability is not what you want when you're in hustle mode. More taxation is not what you want in hustle mode. Now this is not to be confused with you want your income to go up. Don't get me wrong, you want your income to go up. You want your active income to grow up because that means your businesses are growing, your businesses are growing in value, and then we could play tricks like with the S corporation or maybe in the future the C corporation or a money losing LLC that's a startup for you, whatever, right? There are things you can do with your income. Cost segregation on real estate, uh, you know, 179 expenses for, for buying uh, vehicles or whatever. There are a lot of things that you can do. The last thing you want to do is sap your motivation and pay more taxes over here. The, one of the best things that you could do while you're working harder and you're actually increasing your exposure to higher income is when it comes to investments, the type of investments you usually want here. This phase is the equity phase, and then this phase is the income phase. Because this is when your base income, your salary generally goes down when you're towards retirement, right? So it's okay to have income from passive sources. What you want here though is equity, because this is not taxed until you sell, right? So how do you build equity? You build equity by buying real estate that you're not worried about cash flowing. Maybe you get just enough rent to cover the mortgage. Uh, and the goal is that you're building equity and wealth appreciation rather than income. In the future, you can shift that. You pay off a mortgage, boom, you instantly got income. You also have less write-offs then. But you want equity to be your goal as a hustler. When you're in the hustle phase, you build equity. That's your goal. And the reason you focus on equity over passive income, so EQ over passive income is because equity will also give you flexibility in borrowing. And this is something that is so easily forgotten. But folks, if you want to be an entrepreneur, it is so much easier to actually build businesses when you have the ability to draw on a home equity line of credit, when you have the ability to draw on a small portion of margin because maybe you've saved up $500,000 and you're willing to take out 50k in margin to start up a business. That's a lot easier to do than when you have nothing. When you don't have a $500,000 stock portfolio. When you don't have a home equity line of credit where you've got $200,000 to draw from. Right? This is where we want to get to as entrepreneurs. So when you start out, you want to get to having these sorts of options. Now generally I don't like margin, but I'm just saying if you take out a small portion out of a larger portion, it's not that big of a deal. It gives you some flexibility, especially if then you could pay it off with a home equity line of credit if need be, and you're kind of using this as like operating cash. But when you're starting at zero, you don't have these things. What gets you to having a home equity line of credit or a larger margin balance? Not passive income that's actually demotivating you and taxing you. What gets you to that level is equity. 
you've got to build equity. You build equity in the property that you own, that in the future you'll turn into a rental property and then own another property. Uh, and then second, you get equity in stocks. But cash flowing real estate dividend and bond portfolios that are paying you distributions are really sapping motivation, leading to an increase of taxes, and you're doing this backwards. You're trying to create passive income so you can work less when you should be building equity so you can work more efficiently, build substantially more wealth. So when you then transition to the income phase, which you could retire early, right? You wanna retire early, you want this to be at 40? Fine, transition early. You want that to be 50? That's still early. You know, for most people, that's like 70. Well, we wanna kill that idea unless you wanna keep working. You could do whatever you want with this curve, right? You never have to end the equity phase, right? Uh, ultimately, you can do whatever you want. So I don't want you to think that, you know, I'm somehow suggesting that you need to work forever. You don't. But when you're 20 years old, 18 years old, 25 years old, 30, 35, 40, and you're still in this growth phase, this is not what you want. You're not thinking about working less. And so you're not thinking about income. You think about motivation. And so now this brings up this, this crazy idea. Uh, and I really do think it's a crazy idea. It's not, not really the, uh, uh, the, the best thing. Uh, but there is a thesis. Uh, it is a thesis that says if you want to build your wealth and you want your business to succeed and you want to explode your sales as a real estate agent, you want more photography clients uh, for your Matterport business, you want more website clients for your web business, uh, you want more door-to-door -door sales uh, uh, for your, your sales business or your door-to-door -door pest control or solar selling business, whatever. You just want to increase and grow. Maybe you're doing consulting. Who knows what you're doing? Doesn't matter. Does not matter what you're doing. You just want more of it. More, you know, cloud customers for your cybersecurity company. Whatever. What do you do? Well, this is again uh, kind of a, a little bit of a, of, a, of a dirty suggestion, but it's something that's been said before. You sink yourself up to your eyeballs in expenses and debt. Now. I don't advocate for this, but I want you to think about the implication of what I just said. If you end up, uh, and, and some people do this, but you end up, let's say, buying a house you can barely afford, kind of like what I did when I first started. I was 18, 19 years old, we get into escrow on a home, uh, I have no solid income, no clients in real estate, right? And we, uh, we get in using Jamba Juice and Mrs. Field's income into an FHA loan that costs us like 1,900 bucks a month. And we're like, crap, we, we don't really, we can't really afford this, you know? It's like, you, you could take out a hard money loan so you don't have to worry about the qualifying, but you're still on the hook for paying this kind of money, right? So all of a sudden, we're looking at this, Lauren and I, we're like, okay, well, our expenses, you know, add some repairs in there, we're probably at, uh, and utilities, we're probably somewhere at 2,200 bucks a month. Uh, that works out to, uh, you know, somewhere around $26,400 a year of annual expenses for, for this property, and maybe we make 20 right now, right? So we're like, dang, well, this sucks. Guess what this means? We better go find some real estate clients. You are all of a sudden extremely motivated to get this money at a bare minimum because you don't want to go bankrupt. Now the time to take those risks, and I'm not saying do this, but again, the time to make, take those risks is when your net worth is basically zero. 
I mean, our net worth when we first bought our property was like $7,000 each. Uh, so maybe combined somewhere between fourteen dollars and $18,000. Now, because we got a really good deal, a wedge deal that we fixed up with a loan from the bank, we were able to explode our net worth from $18,000 to over $150,000 very quickly, thanks to the property, which then let us take out a home equity line of credit. We built equity in that. When we refinanced a, a year and a half later, we were able to buy our first rental property with money that we built in equity from that home. And I now had more money to go do things in real estate, like launching my TV commercial. Uh, which I spent like $70,000 on. It was like 50000 in production. Actually, it was probably closer to ninety. It was like fifty in production and then uh, something like $40,000 in ad expenses or something like that. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that maybe in a different video. But the point is, the goal was, what can we do to get motivated to work, to wake up every day and go, crap, we have to work. And while our net worth is zero, you know, that's the time to potentially risk these letters right here, bankruptcy. I know that sounds terrible, but it's like, look, if you're at zero and you go bankrupt, you literally go from zero to zero. Like, who cares? <laughs> right? That's, that's part of America. So you take the risk, you take the chance of growing, and if you need to get yourself motivated by having a little bit of an expensive cost of living in terms of a house, hey, there are things you can do to offset the risk of this. We could have easily rented out two of the rooms. Heck, we could have rented out the couch in the family room as well. And just by doing that, we could have probably covered all of our payment if we needed to. But we didn't because we looked at this and said, this motivates us to work. Let's get out there and do everything we can to make sure we get as many clients as we can. I personally like motivating uh, with, with assets that are actually going to benefit you. Generally not depreciating assets like cars, not the best. I'd rather do this with real estate. Of course, uh, it also depends on the timing of the market. Uh, you know, for, for certain people in certain tax situations, it's gonna make a lot more sense for, for their business to say, hey, you know what, we're gonna get, uh, we're gonna buy 10 Sprinter vans and we're gonna write them all off because then we're gonna be able to take a $500,000 tax deduction and we've got a whole new fleet for our entire crew. That's gonna make sense for certain businesses. For most entrepreneurs, it probably makes sense to start with real estate and really get yourself exposed to, to uh, building wealth and equity in real estate. Of course, again, you wanna look at the macro cycle of real estate, you know, if we're about to go into a real estate downturn uh, because mortgage rates are rising and they're still rising, you might wanna pause a little bit and wait. But the rationale here is what can you do to motivate yourself? And the last thing that will motivate you is this concept of passive income. Because really, what's passive income doing? Well, again, passive income is not only going to get you taxation, but it's going to likely demotivate you. It's going to make you like, I don't have to go knock on doors today because ah, passive income is paying the bills. Whereas if you have passive expenses, like a large mortgage relative to your income, you are motivated. <laughs> That's the goal here. Figure out how to get yourself motivated to where you're like, okay, I gotta blow up this business, otherwise I got big problems. Now again, something here is risky to consider, especially if you have a family and kids, and this is where you have to say to yourself, look, 
hey, I could have taken that risk when I was 18, like I did, right? Uh, but now I got kids, I don't know if I want to take that risk because then I'll have to take them out of school or, or whatever, you know, private school, and, or, or maybe they're not even at private school yet and it'll hurt the opportunity for them to go to private school. So you have to make these personal decisions yourself and see, well, where are you in your life and how much risk are you willing to take? Of course, the risk you take should be reasoned. It, it shouldn't be ludicrous. Like, you don't want to go out and say, I'm going to go spend uh, money on a credit card for a Rolex because it's going to help me sell more door-to-door. -door. Stuff like that is butter. It's bullcrap. It's, it's nonsense. It's not actually going to help you increase uh, your, your uh, net worth in the long term. And it's this facade, this illusion of wealth. You want to ignore that kind of stuff. You want to make investments where you can build equity and motivate yourself. And that's why real estate is such a great way to start. All right, let's talk about the hardest part about actually making a lot of money. I really hate saying this, okay? But it is true. And the sooner you recognize this, the sooner you could get excited about it because it's like, okay, I'm on the path. This is just normal. This is exciting. Watch this. At first, and this is almost always the case, at first, you will be, what is it? What is it that you will be? Underpaid. It's just a fact. When you start in life, you will always start as underpaid. Unless you were born into some rich family and then it's like, what fulfillment are you going to have in your life anyway? Honestly, I think I'd be devastated. I mean, like, let's, let's two-part this, okay? Imagine you were born, like, super mega rich. On one hand, it's kind of like, well, like, that's kind of devastating because then to some degree you, you can't make your own fulfillment, right? You can't do that. But then again, it probably would also be kind of cool. <laughs> like, but, but that's not the case for, for 99 plus percent of people. So uh, I, I think the best way to look at it is F that. F being born rich. We're going to make it ourselves, okay? We're going to make our own meant to be. Have you ever heard that phrase? The phrase, oh, well, if it's meant to be, it'll happen? Nah, F that. Make your own meant to be. So change your mindset. Think happy, less frustrated, good thoughts. So, at first, you will be underpaid. Let me show you my income history. So, my income history was uh, working for, you know, $5 doing crazy chores uh, uh, for my family as a kid, uh, doing free tech support, right, uh, for, for uh, you know, my dad or, or my mom or setting stuff up for neighbors or family or whatever, making $5 as a kid making $7.26 at, you know, Hollister, making $8 at Jamba Juice, getting uh, a raise to $8.05, leaving that job making $9. Uh, then, uh, gosh, after the $9, that was when I was a host. Then I got moved to being an expediter where I was paid Let's say it was $8 plus 2% of, of the tips. It was like a pool tip thing. So that was probably like $10. And you can see this is like, this is freaking painful right? as, as a process. So then I became a real estate agent. And uh, we'll, we'll math this out here into a per hour figure. So my first year, I made about $36,000. Uh, how many hours do you work a, week, a year? Well, if you work 40 hours a week at 46 weeks, 
uh, like I'll call it 2,000 just to make math easy. So 30, hold on, let's make sure we did that math right. 46 weeks at 40 hours a week. Yeah, it's about 2,000 hours. That's all we work in a, in a year? That seems odd, but okay. $36,000 divided by 2,000. That's about $18 an hour, my first year as real estate. That's actually not that bad, okay. Uh, then I made 52,000 the next year. Uh, that works out to about $26 an hour. The next year I made about 140K divided by 2,000 hours. Ooh, that's nice. That works out to about 70 bucks an hour. The year after that, I made about 255 divided by 2,000. That's about $127 an hour. Uh, after that, uh, then, then it, we get a little crazy. We went into like the 300s and the 500s. Let's go with a $500,000 a year. $500,000 a year is about $250 per hour. And uh, now it's probably a little crazier, but let's just say it's potentially $2,500 an hour, <laughs> okay? That's pretty crazy. Uh, so I would say that, you know, my first, what, of adulthood, this, this period over here, this was probably all underpaid uh, for what I was doing. And then only over here, I mean, that's probably reasonable, right? That was probably reasonable at the time. Uh, if I was still doing that, it'd be like, yeah, this is fair. It's, it's a lot of work. And maybe I worked more hours, but whatever. Now it's kind of like, all right, well, this is overpaid. Okay. But the point is, it shows you this path that you spend a lot of time, a lot of time, making these very, very small gains up front. I mean, come on, man, work for a year, five cents. I'm like, get me out of here. I'll go get another job. So at first you will be underpaid. What happens after you're underpaid? In the future, you will be overpaid. In the future. And this gets even more ridiculous for people on Wall Street who take companies public or whatever, because then the pay just, you know, then that, that 10, 10x is again, and all of a sudden it's 25, that it, then it just gets ridiculous, right? So if at first you will be underpaid, and then in the future will be overpaid, then we don't really know what this is. We don't know the path to this, right? And I think that's probably the most important thing, is there is no single path. You kind of have to get on this road that has no extension with a smile and go, you know what? I'm gonna start a side hustle or a new job and I don't know how I'm going to move up. But I know that today I can go get a job. Like if I was gonna start over, I, I had no experience, no skills, nothing, what would I do? I'd be like, all right, well, I know right now I could go work for Amazon Fulfillment and make 25 bucks an hour. Even if it's seasonal, whatever, I'll get the job. I will work so hard. I will show up early. I'll stay late. I will do whatever I can to make sure I go from a seasonal job to a permanent job. And then when I go to a permanent job, what am I going to do? I'm going to take the educational opportunities from that job. At the same time, I'm going to be probably doing a side hustle as a real estate agent. Everybody watching this video right now, I know without a doubt, it doesn't matter what uh, experience or capabilities you have, 
you could be a real estate agent. You could pass that license test and you could go get a job in Amazon Fulfillment Center as a seasonal employee. Everybody I know can do that. Your goal is to get a permanent job to become a manager. Because when you manage people, what do you learn? You learn customer service. You learn tools that are actually going to help you when you're uh, uh, self-employed or in the business world. Because you could end up moving. See, now you're, you're actually running two paths here, right? You're running the Amazon path and you're running the real estate agent path. And then what you do is you keep burning the candle at both of these ends here, these, both, these two jobs. And then one of them, you're going to dead end at potentially. Maybe you dead end at both of them. And then you try to find a different path, right? And we don't know what's going to happen. You're going to do something what I call is you're going to let, this is so important, right here. I would write this one down, okay? I would really write this phrase down because you can't path this out. You can't map this out and go, oh yeah, one day I'm going to make 127 bucks an hour. You just, you can't map this out. You have, I had no freaking idea when I was making $9 an hour and I got my real estate license that five years later I'd make 127 bucks an hour. I had no freaking idea. And when I went from 127 bucks an hour, did I have any idea I would ever be at 2,500? No, no freaking idea. I didn't know the path. So how could you wrap it out? You can't. So what do you do when you do a fork like this? You let the market decide. We are in a capitalistic economy. A capitalistic economy means the best product and the best service makes the best amount of money. And you must let your belief in a capitalistic economy function in order for you to succeed as a business person. You have to have faith in the market. So what do you do? You don't try to perfectly plan this out. You jump in. Most people don't jump in because they're worried. What about liability? What if it doesn't work? What if I lose money trying? What if I get my license and then I hate it? Who cares? You're not dead. Then go start something else. Right? So get excited about the journey. This is part of, this is life right here. The journey is life. It's destination in life is dead. The, you got to enjoy the path, the journey. And, and the fogginess makes it fun. Not knowing makes it fun. And when you start changing your mindset to going, you know, you're right. It is the journey. I am, ac I am thankful for my job. I am thankful for the path. I'm thankful for the journey. I am thankful for the uncertainty because it's fun. And I'm not going to stress myself out about what could be. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to do. And then I will let the market decide. When you ever hit a decision point and, and you're like, I don't know. Should I do this or should I do that? Don't decide yourself. Let the market decide. The market will tell you if your product or service sucks. The market will tell you where you belong. Where can you make more money? Try many things and you will find out which works and which doesn't. So let the market decide. So let's say you become a permanent employee over here at Amazon, you make $60,000 a year. All of a sudden you're making $80,000 a year as a real estate agent and you have the potential to make more in real estate. You can quit that, go full time, push out the real estate, focus on the top line. Don't do both forever. Vice versa, you tried doing a real estate agent gig for two years, you've made 20 grand, and over here they're like, hey, we want to send you to corporate. You want, you're going to make $150,000 a year as corporate. <laughs> what do I need that license for anymore? And you still got it. <laughs> you know, represent yourself on a deal if you wanted to. Um, but there you go. The market's decided.
Now, now you have a new fork because you don't have to do this forever. And that's the other thing people get stuck on is this idea that, oh, no, I'm, well, then I'm, now I'm stuck working corporate handcuffs forever at $150,000 uh, a year. I want to make more, Kevin. I want to do more than $150,000. Okay, so get on a new path and let the market decide that. So $150K corporate or you're going to potentially, uh, you know what, now I'm going to try uh, computer science. So programming. So you join a boot camp and you could see what kind, of, uh, uh, what kind of jobs you can land in computer science. Maybe you start doing a part-time job somewhere and all of a sudden your corporate job is like, hey, we'll give you a raise to $160,000 in computer science. You're not landing anything? Okay, we'll kill that and think of a different idea. You know, that's your what's next. And so you think of something else. Uh, or you uh, work part-time, uh, you know, $30,000 a year. You work uh, 20 hours a, a week at a startup and all of a sudden they're like, hey, you're so good. We want to pay you... Uh, to work here full-time, and we want to pay you $250,000. Now you go to the corporation, you go, you don't have to decide. Remember, what do you do? Let the market decide. Hey, Amazon, I really love working here, but I just got an offer that's going to pay me $90,000 more a year. I don't want to leave here, but for the sake of my family, that's a really good offer. But before I make any decision, I, I wanted to let you know about it and not because I'm asking for more money, but I just, I want your perspective. I want to let you know I want your perspective. Uh, I, I uh, you know, if there is an idea that you have, I'm all ears for it. Again, I'm not, I'm not asking for you to match that. I think that's a great opportunity. And there's even more upside over there in, in what we could do at that startup. But I just wanted to give you that. You know, can you get back to me and let me know if, if y'all have any ideas? And, uh, yep, yeah, absolutely. Let's think about that. We'll get back to you. You know, don't ask for a decision right there. People can't make a decision in the spot like that. So they go away and they come back and they're like, dude, you are such a hard worker. We need you here. We'll pay you $300,000 and we'll put you in another position. Well, maybe I do want to stay here now, right? Or they come back, hey, hey, you know, we, we could get you to 175, but otherwise, sorry. Okay, boom, market decided. It's that simple. The market will decide things for you. You have to let it decide, though. You have to create the opportunity. The only reason you were able to let the market decide here is because you decided while I'm working here or having gone from that seasonal to permit job, whatever, the numbers could be different. They could be half that. They could be twice this. It doesn't matter. But the only reason you had the opportunity to let the market decide was because you started a side hustle. You started learning computer science. You got a real estate license, right? So the, the beautiful thing is, you do not have to be in a position right now where you say, I know exactly what I'm going to do. No, you don't. Nobody does, and that's okay. <laughs> but you are going to create the market opportunities. And when you create the market opportunities or the opportunity for the market to let you know, that's when you start winning. You know what one of the worst phrases in our society is? It is uh, balance. And the reason balance is one of the worst phrases ever is because it suggests that if you are an entrepreneur, you're somebody who's trying to get ahead, and you're sitting at a dinner table at 8 p.m., that you should be talking about the weather and not about your ambitious plans for the future because, oh, that's not balanced. That's a bull crap. In my opinion, life is about the journey. And if you are going to be a hustler, whether it's hustling in your career to get to a CEO level or it's hustling as an entrepreneur, you have to, have to be focused on the journey. 
And the journey means actually not focusing on this arbitrary schedule that says that's balanced because I have, I spend this many hours with my kids and this many with my wife and this many at work. That does not matter. Time is not what matters. What matters is the journey and the experience. Let me put it this way. Would I rather be sitting at home mindlessly watching Mickey Mouse and the kids are playing on their iPad and Lauren's on TikTok and I'm mindlessly sitting there watching forensic files or whatever uh, and I spend eight hours with everyone. We're just kind of like, oh, okay, we've done nothing. That sounds, you know, desirable for like a lazy Saturday. But what if that was your everyday life? Well, you wouldn't actually be having much of an experience with their family because they're busy having experiences with their own devices. You're not really living a journey because you're doing nothing. You're just kind of sitting around decaying, right? Now, let's change that. What if, for example, for an experience, you now went on a vacation with your family over the weekend. You did a three-day cruise, let's say, and you had no work during that time, but you spent all of that time with your family. You all killed it. You had a great time. It was These were some of the best, you know, 14-hour days. Obviously, you're sleeping some of it on a cruise more than usual. You're some of your best 14-hour days, and you bonded with your children. You went in the pool. You went on excursions. You had experiences with your spouse like none other, right? Wonderful experiences. Now, you go back to that Monday through Friday, and you're like, hey, look, today, you know what? We had this wonderful weekend, I'm going to spend eight to eight and I'm going to grind today for work. And then after that grind, I'm going to spend eight to nine and then I'm going to crash. You know, after that, I'm really just going to kind of zone out and sleep or whatever. But I'm going to spend eight to nine doing, uh, you know, some games uh, or an interactive, oh, I don't know, like a dance party uh, with, with my wife. We'll have a glass of wine, we'll have a dance party and we'll dance with the children as well, right? In this example, You've spent very little time in the day with your kids or your family, but you spent a really good quality hour with them. You grinded from eight to eight. You don't want to do this forever, right? You want this to expand and this to shrink to some degree. But the point is, this is still better than you watching Mickey Mouse or Forensic Files and them on their devices and you all not actually interacting together, even though time-wise, technically on paper, you spend more time with them uh, 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 you know, as a family. So that is this deceptive part about time. People think, oh, you've got to spend more time. No, you just have to have better experiences together. That dedicated time on that cruise, that dedicated dance party, that scheduled time. And this is one of the things that I do like doing, is I purposefully like scheduling things with a family or friends uh, at, you know, times like this, 5, 6, 7, 8 p.m. I think these are times for people on a daily basis. It's dinner, it's doing an escape room, it's doing uh, uh, drinks in a movie, it's, uh, you know, having a, having a party and Ubering there, whatever, right? Like, those are the times to do that because they're not during the business hours, but even though I might not be spending all day with them, I'm having a much more quality experience because we're actually doing real things together that we've all planned for. In the meantime, I can actually focus on grinding when I need to grind. And that's really, really important. So people forget that it's not a matter of how much time technically on paper you spend doing something. It's how that quality is that you spend. Let me give you another example, okay? If I make, and, and we'll call this a, a YouTube example. Let's say 
I research a banger video, and because of my experience in researching, I can spend one hour researching the video and one hour filming, editing, posting, thumbnailing, whatever, uh, the video. And I post a banger video. And I post that video by 9 a.m. because I started at 7. And then I take the rest of the day off, and all I do is I play video games. That's all I do the rest of the day. And I do that with my wife because it's fun. And we get to have this experience all day long. Did somehow my video become a lower quality video because I was playing video games all day long? Did somehow my work become lower quality because I played video games long? No, of course not. Now, I could have taken that time and made another, you know, two hour batch of video and then another one. Maybe I had three videos before, right? But the point is, the quality of what you do is not dependent on how much time you spend in general. People think, oh, in order for you to be a, a, you know, a CEO of Househack, you have to spend X number of hours. No. In order for you to be a YouTuber, you have to spend X number of hours. Wrong. It's not about hours. It's about quality of hours. And that is something when we think about balance, I think the most important thing you should be replacing the word balance with is not balanced time. It's balanced quality. And that, in my opinion, is a, it has been a huge shift in my life in terms of, okay, that's how we're going to look about, uh, about dividing my time. That's how we're actually going to get ahead because we're going to focus on the highest quality things that we can do at any given time. So that way, I don't necessarily have to spend a lot of time on something. I can spend very good quality time on something and then move on. And of course, throughout this course, we'll be talking about how we can spend quality time on things uh, and, and, and become more efficient in doing exactly so. But I think one of the, the things that you could use this for to not be like depressed in life either is you really want to make sure that you plan, that you have plans because they give you something to look forward to. For example, if you have a 5 p.m. dinner to look forward to, you have an 8 p.m dance party to look forward to. You have a cruise to look forward to. You have a trip to, to Europe or, you know what, a, a, a road trip to look forward to. You have these things to look forward to. These give you calendar things to look forward to. These give you things in the day to look forward to so that during the week you have things to look forward to. And what they actually do is they make you work harder before those deadlines. You will always work harder in the hour before dinner than the five hours before that dinner. You'll always work harder in that hour before the dance party. You'll always work harder before the cruise or before the trip. So plan more things. So then way, that way you're actually tricking yourself to become substantially more efficient before those things. The more things you have going on, the more you are forced to spend quality time on things. Now, you have to be careful because you don't want to squeeze yourself to the point of stress where, oh my gosh, there's so many things that I need to do. I am just feeling like this, like super foggy, right? We don't, and that was just also a convenient way for me to clean the screen. Uh, you know, you don't want to be in that sort of situation. And so, of course, some things take time. Uh, and so this, there's, there is a balance to how you allocate time, right? I can't say that, okay, I'm going to study for this test that's going to take me at least uh, you know, 40 Kevin hours to study for. I'm not going to sit there and say, well, my hours are going to be more quality. I'm only going to give myself 20 hours. That's how you create stress and anxiety because now you've short-fused yourself. 
probably something that creates the most stress in my life is if I short fuse myself. If I don't short fuse myself and I have time, then we're in a good place. And the beautiful thing is, generally one of the things we have in our lives is another day. It doesn't have to usually be done today, unless there's a test or a deadline or whatever. You usually have another day. Uh, that, that shouldn't take away your motivation and your urgency to get something done. But you don't want to be in a situation where you feel so urgent that you feel stressed and anxious, because that will reduce your productivity. That will lead you to, let's say, alcohol or substance abuse, and, and then you just go down a terrible vortex of actually being unproductive. Because I personally found if I drink too much on a, a night before, or sometimes even at all, the next day is less productive. For example, uh, I, I haven't had alcohol in the evening for quite a while, and my days have been extremely productive the next day. So imagine you go to an extreme and you're drunk every single night. Well, that's really going to weigh on your ability to wake up early in the morning to focus. It's very difficult to work when you're hungover, uh, or if you're, you're under other substances. So sometimes. Focusing on your health as well and substances and, and eliminating some of these things that could really alter your, your ability to perform is actually a good idea as well. Now, of course, later in this, uh, in, in this lecture, we'll talk a little, or in these uh, courses, we'll talk a little bit more about these sorts of things. But this is just sort of an intro into some ways to think about your mindset. Now, for some of us, one of the hardest decisions to make is to actually go into the apps every single time we get paid and transfer money over to our brokerage account. Fortunately, almost every single broker makes this easier now by automating transfers. And what I like to do here, because immediately when we think about automating transfers, we think, oh, that's basic or whatever. Make sure it's one of the first things that goes out of your account and do it by making sure the money goes out on the 30th, not on the 1st. And then that way, if you overdraw, you can always take money back out of the brokerage account. It might take a day or two or whatever, but it gets you in that habit in an inexpensive way, because overdrafts really aren't that terribly expensive. Just make sure you're paying your bills on time, right? We don't want to be late on things. But even if you happen to accidentally go negative one month, it's like, oh, I, I got to be a little bit better this month. That's good. Remember, you can always send money back from your brokerage to your account. But you automate that sending over psychologically, it's there uh, in your brokerage. And guess where it's not? In front of your face where you're more likely to spend it. It's a little trick like this. As soon as you get over this idea that, oh, but what if I overdraw? Once you get over that idea, big deal. It's really not that big of a deal when you walk through it. Boom. You start doing that. You start sending that money over and over and over. And before you know, you actually start creating a substantial nest egg. So keep that in mind. Automate. Don't so much worry about it. Obviously, try to prevent it from happening if you happen to overdraw, but pay that investing portion and be a substantial portion first. We've heard of the phrase before, pay yourself first. Do that, seriously, do that. Not this 10 or 20% of your budget, no, a big portion, send it over. Now remember, you can always send it back. But psychologically, you probably won't, which is a good thing. Hey everyone, so I frequently get asked about, hey, for building wealth, what's better, self-employment or employment, being an employee versus being self-employed? And one of the things that I found is that, uh, well, actually, statistically as well, statistically, those who are self-employed work about 20% more hours, if not sometimes even twice as many hours uh, as individuals who are employed. And that's not to say that if you're an employee, you can't have side hustles or other things. In fact, that's one of the most beautiful things about having a 40-hour schedule or a 35-hour schedule, Wh whatever your schedule is. Maybe you're a nurse, you work 32 hours, or a firefighter, or a cop, or whatever it is. The beautiful thing about this is, look, you want to go on vacation, 
you just have to plan ahead a little bit and you get your paid time off. You get paid to be on vacation. Sure, you have to, again, pre-plan that schedule, but you're getting benefits. You're getting health insurance benefits. You're getting uh, paid days off when there are ho holidays that are paid. Uh, sometimes you'll even get benefits like maternity, paternity. It also makes it very easy to uh, take the skill set that you've built and potentially jump to another company who's paying more money. Like we've always said in the program, look, you've got your know, computer programming skill and you've got a really great background and you've got a lot of experience. Hey, your boss isn't interested in paying you more because uh, after you've built value for a while for the company and if they don't value you, then it makes it easy for you to take your skills somewhere else. Uh, that's very difficult, if not impossible, to do in self-employment because it's not like you can quit yourself, right? It also makes qualifying so much easier and hey, there could even be stock-based compensation in the future, right? Whereas with self-employment, you really don't have a lot of these things. You really don't ever get time off. Again, statistically, you work 20 hours more, but folks like to say that generally self-employed people are always on the clock, and so that induces a lot of stress and it makes family dynamics a lot more difficult. Sure, you might be home and working from home, and it's like, oh, how cool, you're around more, but you're actually not really around more because you're just more stressed all the time, right? You also have this concept of failure that you have to deal with, which at, at a company, you take your skills and go somewhere else if the company fails. But if you're self-employed and you fail, it's like, wow, that could cost you a lot of money. And not only can it cost you a lot of money, but it can also cost you a lot of qualifying opportunities. Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes at uh, companies, there can, be, uh, there can be ceilings, right? You could end up having uh, a ceiling where, where your skill set is, is limiting you to a certain amount of pay. Uh, whereas in self-employment, of course, this is always the dream is that, oh, there's, there's potentially no ceiling. Uh, but usually the ceiling here is your time. So I'm going to say other than time, other than time, uh, in which case, of course, you could hire. But then there's no guarantee that if you hire, you wouldn't have uh, the same issues of somebody just jumping ship, right? Unless, of course, you're paying proper benefits and properly compensating people or more than properly compensating people, right? These are things very, very important. So uh, when it comes to self-employment versus employment, of course, a lot of people like to bring up the idea of, oh, but hey, if you're self-employed, you can write off a bunch of stuff. But here's the thing. So can people who are employees. In fact, let's say you're an employee and you're a human resources rep and uh, you uh, do some consulting on the side. You open a side business for consulting. Well, now all of a sudden, if you had a side business as an LLC or whatever for consulting, and you had an expectation of making profit, this is distinguished from something being a hobby. This is very important, and you should talk to your CPA about that, the difference between a business that actually expects to make profit and a business that essentially only exists to lose money, which is called a hobby, right? Uh, if, as long as something is not a hobby, you don't want something to be a hobby, uh, then you could write it off. So this means this person who's in human resources who's now doing consulting can actually write off Pretty much anything the self-employed person can write off. Computers, potential trips, uh, phones, phone bills, uh, home office, right? Pretty much all of the same uh, benefits that a self-employed person has uh, could be true for, for an employed person with a side hustle. So uh, just because you write stuff off is not necessarily the, the best reason to be self-employed. In fact, it's arguably potentially the worst reason. Uh, it's it's playing, you know, doing a certain job solely because of the tax benefits probably isn't, isn't a great idea. But anyway, uh, it's much harder to qualify when you're self-employed as well, right? Uh, whereas as an employee, it's substantially easier. Now, sure, one of the other benefits of being self-employed is you can write off your health insurance premiums. But then again, if you're an employee, you might be getting those paid for you 
anyway, you know, or at least you're getting some kind of contribution. So generally, uh, what I say to people who are like, oh, you know, tired of working for the man, want to go do my own thing or whatever. It's like, golly, milk the opportunity to be working for somebody and to be in a stable work environment. Uh, because what you get out of that is uh, basically a risk-free opportunity by having this letter that says, hey, first of all, uh, I am building my resume, but second of all, uh, and it's good to show that you can actually stay somewhere and uh, be on a payroll for a while and work in a team or whatever, uh, but in addition to that, you're getting this, this free opportunity of qualifying, qualifying for real estate, being able to go to a lender and say, hey, I have worked here for three years. Can I qualify for a loan? You're self-employed. They put you through the ringer. You got a W-2. Jeez, that's all you need. What more do you need? You get your W-2, some bank statements or whatever, uh, and you're, you're set. So milk it. You know, people like to use this phrase, oh, but it's golden handcuffs or whatever. Man, the amount of people that I've seen that have gone from resentful at their employee, uh, employer to, uh, to doing their own thing and then just totally failing and then wishing they were back is very, very high. Uh, this is very, very common. And that's not to say that you can't succeed out on your own. It's just that why, why not set yourself up first to qualify for real estate, own real estate, be an investor, uh, make sure you have a stock account, you funded your 401, your Roth, you've gotten into real estate, you've established yourself, if you're, especially if you're already working for an employer, uh, and then consider self-employment. And this is not to say that if you're in self-employment, you should consider getting a job, unless of course, you're just not making it in self-employment, right? Sometimes I see folks, they'll be in self-employment, and, and after all their tax write-offs or whatever, which they think is a good deal, they're like, oh, look, I only made $30,000 this year. I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, well, I had all these write-offs. And I'm like, oh, how much did you make? Oh, well, I made 60 and I wrote off 30. And I'm like, that's nothing to be proud of. You've still only made 30. So now you would be better off going somewhere else and working 40 hours and not being self-employed, not even getting those write-offs and uh, doing something for an employer. So. Sometimes self-employment isn't all it's you know, chalked up to be. Very, very stressful, hard for work-life balance. Uh, I, it's arguable whether, whether you, you would make more money. Uh, of course, there's no ceiling, but then you know, this is a determination that you have to make in terms of are you going to be in that maybe 20% of individuals in self-employment who, who do surpass anything that you could make uh, as an employee. And I would say don't take too long to figure that out. For example, if you're in self-employment and your income is doing this, you know, it probably not worth uh, not not worth the self-employment unless that number is is substantially greater for the amount of time that you put in that you could get somewhere else. Now, if you're in self-employment and you know one year you're making ten thousand dollars and then you're making twenty thousand dollars and you're making forty thousand dollars and now you're making eighty and then you know, you're actually growing, where it's like, oh well, this year I'm on track to make one fifty or two hundred or whatever. Well, that, that's a different story. Uh, now you're on a growth curve, and obviously you should keep going with that. But uh, there are a lot of people in self-employment who should not be self-employed. Uh, they, sh they should get. And it, it sounds so terrible to say, like, oh, get a job, but. Um, Surprisingly, for building wealth and investing, could be some of the most important things that, or thing, could be the most important thing that somebody needs to hear. Anyway, there you have it.